Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffeld, your host for today. I'm a pediatrician in the Cincinnati area and I'm excited to be here for today's discussion. We will consult today with Dr. Andrew Strine and Lawrence Botafor, nurse practitioner from Cincinnati Children's Department of Urology on dysuria and urinary tract infections. So let's get started and learn a little bit about our guest today. Um, so Lauren, let's start with you. If you could share just a few sentences about your background, maybe how long you've been practicing, and even how long you've been practicing at Cincinnati Children's, some special interests you might have. You can share clinically, personally, whatever you would like. Hi there, my name's Lauren. Um, I would say as far as nurse practitioner, I've been a nurse practitioner for about five years. This is my starting role. I've been a nurse for about 16, 17 years. And um, as far as being a nurse, I worked at Children's, I left, worked in different areas. I did travel nursing agency, and I came back and worked inpatient and outpatient. Interest-wise, I'm big into yoga. I'm a yoga instructor on the side, and um, enjoy time with my nieces and nephews, enjoy traveling, anything outdoors. Awesome. Thank you. And then how about special interests clinically? Special interests <laughs> clinically. Um, I would <laughs> say a big one clinically would be related to working with these patients with preventative care in respect to a lot of, we see a lot of kids with anxiety and depression and, and I feel there's a big component with these kids or ADHD with bowels and bladder. So we discuss a lot of that, like a holistic view in this role. Um, and also I'm doing some research stuff on the side about NGAL and colonization versus positive urine culture and concerns for overtreatment of UTIs when sometimes I don't feel they're accurate UTIs. Great. So. And I love that kind of intro and segue because I think when, you know, I mentioned we're going to talk about dysuria and urinary tract infections, yeah. I don't think that's where everyone's mind goes yeah. initially is the preventative aspect and some, you know, of the bowel things that we'll discuss that can also really play into that. So thank you. And then Dr. Strain, if you want to tell us just a little bit about your background and your practice and Sure. So I finished my training here in 2017, and then I've remained on faculty since then. Um, I have a general urology practice as well as more specialty practice, so I take care of a lot of children with recurrent urinary tract infections and bladder and bowel issues. And then also, particular interests include um, patients with genitourinary cancers, fertility preservation. Um, I do a lot of you know complex lower urinary tract reconstruction and minimally invasive surgery. Wow. Also, I think not always where we think about when we think about urology and dysuria. So thank you both for sharing and thank you for joining us today. So today our conversation is focused, as I had mentioned, on dysuria, dysuria and urinary tract infections. Um, and I'll kind of just put this generally for whoever would like to take this question, but would one of you be able to share just a quick overview of maybe UTIs in general some data or incidents on how often as a primary care pediatrician that we may see patients um, in our office with this and just its significance in terms of, you know, inpatient hospitalizations, cost of the healthcare system in general, things that just make it important for us to talk about today. Right. Um, so I would say that, you know, urinary tract infections, urinary tract complaints are a very common issue in children. And it's a very common reason why patients are presenting to their primary care. And obviously, we often evaluate many of these patients in referral 
Um, so there's some data to suggest up to, you know, three to four percent of children will develop a UTI annually. Um, so it's very common. And that leads to significant treatment in terms of antibiotics, um, significant evaluations with regard to imaging. Um, some patients need to be admitted for hospitalization for, you know, significant febrile UTIs. So it's definitely a significant cost on our healthcare system um, with how frequent this is occurring. And I think I remember, and you may have shared this um, in some emails we had sent, but do you remember inpatient hospitalizations, I think, was a, over tens of thousands yeah. annually for urinary tract infections, and that, and that, which that, really that, stuck with me. And that data is old. Um, okay. That's from um, a national project looking at healthcare costs in urology, um, and that was back from the early 2000s. Okay. Um, and that data hasn't been updated since then, so I'd expect it to actually be exponentially more now than it was wow. based on those estimates. So very significant. And then obviously, considering that, you know, plenty of increased health care costs and, um, along the way. So, you know, in thinking in my role as a general pediatrician, um, you know, if I have someone coming in, and, and this is an interesting topic because it very much changes based on age, right, um, as well as, you know, maybe even just sex of the patient, um, what, you know, are there any specific red flags that I should look for when I have a patient coming in um, with dysuria, urinary frequency? And I know that's a very broad question, but what might be some of the first things that we should go through when we're assessing the patient initially in the office? And maybe the complaint is urinary frequency or, you know, pain or both. I would say for me, one of the first things I ask is when did this start? Um, from an acuity perspective, this is like a new onset within the past month or two, then I'm thinking bowels a lot faster. Yet if this has been something that's been ongoing intermittently, I still think of bowels and go through the basic indications of fluid intake, um, how often they're urinating, what are their habits as far as are they feeling comfortable going to the bathroom at school? How are things going at home? Like are there some social implications? Are they different one place or the other? Um, those are some of the basic things for me. When did this change or when did this start is a big indicator. Great. And I'm definitely looking for other associated symptoms that might raise my level of concern. So are they having, like you said, daytime accidents? Mm -hmm. Are they having secondary onset of bedwetting mm -hmm. um, that wasn't present before? Have they actually been diagnosed with a urinary tract infection in the recent past? Um, what are their bladder and bowel habits like? Um, and that'd be helpful to understand, you know, what they are, if they're having just underlying bladder bowel dysfunction, which would be a very common cause of this. I think, like um, Lauren mentioned, the holistic approach is important because I'll ask uh, families, what's going on at home? And they'll be like, oh, you know, I just had one last week that said my, you know, their grandma um, got dementia and she just recently moved out of the house and it was a huge stress on their child. And they mm -hmm. started, you know, going to the bathroom, you know, every five to ten minutes. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. that can certainly have a huge um, impact on, um, on patients, and sometimes it can manifest with kind of bladder issues. Sure. I think that's um, a great point. I, how often I have to explain to parents when I'm asking some of the historical questions why, yes, I need to know about their urinary habits, yeah. but now tell me all about their bowel habits as well. And they're looking at me going, what is why do you care about my child? You know, are they stooling every day? How large are their stools? How often do they go? Um, and then interestingly, most parents do know that, but once you get to, you know, school age, they're not with the child all day long. They're not observing their stools. You know, all those things that may not initially, you know, be obvious to them, but I definitely feel like I spend a lot of time in the office, you know, educating parents why that's so important. Right, so. and oftentimes they'll say they're normal, 
and that's just the presumption, but they don't really know. No, so I know, I know Lauren does this. I do as well. Yeah. I literally get out a Bristol stool chart. Yeah. Be like, what does <laughs> exactly. your poop look like? And I ask the child that too. Sure. And, and not too uncommonly, the family will say, oh, yeah, it's somewhere right in the middle. It looks good. And then the child says, yeah, I have the type 1 bowel movements, and that's happening like once or twice a week. Absolutely. And just because no one asked or looked. Um, uh-huh. So sometimes you have to be very deliberate with the questions when you ask them, because if you don't get very deliberate and very intentional and specific, they're just going to say it's fine, nothing right. to worry about. Are they hard? Are they big? But I joke all the time, and I, ha- you know, when I have little, you know, three and four year olds, and I say, um, "Does their stool look like it should be coming out of a large grown yes. man?" For the, and you know, everybody laughs at that yeah. question, and, right. and it is kind of funny. But how often? Oh yeah, yeah, you know yeah. that definitely they do have those. So. I do a lot of belly x-rays, too. That's something that I've been doing. I've kind of changed my practice. Um, The basic bladder habits, the urine diary, the bowel diary are my primary thing. And when a patient comes in to see me, one of my first questions is, not only when did this start, but what is your primary goal for coming to see us today? As in, I'll get different responses from either the pediatrician just sent us to kind of see where they're at with their information to where I need to start with them. Otherwise, the parent's like, I'm really concerned, and I'm not... You know, they go on. They just need to vent, and then we discuss that and kind of go into the basics. That's with a everything. super important question, I think. Yeah. What's the goal, right? right? What is because it's definitely very different, you right. know, depending on the family. So I think that's a great question. So interestingly, you know, we kind of went down that route. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit to go through um, evaluating a febrile infant in the office. Um, if if either one of you would like to kind of assess what, you know, what specific questions there or what physical exam red flags should I be be looking for? Right. So the most important question I want to understand, was it a febrile illness or not? Um, because if it's a febrile illness, I consider it a different type of infection than if it's an afebrile illness. So if it's just, you know, urinary frequency, urgency, dysuria and, uh, you know, slightly older potty trained child, then that kind of suggests more a bladder infection. And that's where it's more of a concern about underlying bladder or bowel dysfunction as a contributing factor to that. When they start getting high fevers, then I consider that more, you know, a kidney infection, pyelonephritis. Um, and then usually the um, considerations and evaluations would be different in that circumstance. Um, it's so, you know, having a fever with an upper urinary tract infection is not 100%. Um, and sometimes you can have a fever with just kind of cystitis, but it's much less common. So there tends to be a discrepancy in terms of the symptoms with an upper versus a lower urinary tract infection. So understanding that can be helpful. Um, definitely in younger you know, infants, assessing symptoms is hard. Sometimes they just might be irritable, fussy. Sometimes they even have changes in their bowel habits. And those can be very nonspecific signs of urinary tract infection or other things as well. So definitely want to understand you know, the presence of a fever. Um, and then often we rely on the pediatrician for looking for any obvious source of uh, okay. fever. And if there's nothing obvious like a you know, ear infection, upper respiratory infection, uh, some type of um, exposure to someone else that's um, ill in the family, then you know, we certainly consider you know, getting a urine sample to assess for UTI. Absolutely. I don't know I if don't you had anything, anything to, to add. add. I don't have no, to add. I would agree with Andrew. <laughs> <the Anderson. laughs> you, you looked ready, so I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to move on without you being able to um, say whatever you needed to. So, um, you know, I think most general pediatricians understand if there's any suspicion, no matter the age, to go ahead and obtain um, a urine dipstick in the office um, mm-hmm. and send that out for you know urine culture and microscopy, typically. Um, one thing I could add, I'm sorry, no, this you're came fine. to me. Thank this you. Is, um, the one question I do clarify from families when they come and saying they're having these symptoms, how do they get the urine? Was it in a hat or a specimen cup? 
because for us that does, we are very much into specimen, you know, specimen comes for urine culture, um, and that does change my dynamics of thought process with everything and trying to explain that to families. I appreciate that as well. Um, for me, I'm going, oh, I would never get in that. But, you know, there's we have a big audience here and other, you know, people may, might not practice in the same way. But, yes, I think that is very important and never thought, but you, you probably do encounter, you know, oh, it was, you know, in the hat on a, you know, kind of interesting. Yeah, so definitely you see, you know, catheterized specimen definitely is preferable in a Mm -hmm. um, pre-potty trained child. Um, And sometimes that's not always feasible. So not too infrequently we'll see bag specimens obtained, um, which can be helpful if it's negative. Um, so if you have a negative bag specimen... I'm cringing over right. here as you're saying yeah. So bag urine. Yeah, so a neg- negative one can be helpful, and that can effectively rule out a UTI. Um, but if, then if it's positive, you don't know, is it contamination from the skin or is it a true UTI? So it can be helpful in certain circumstances, and I probably wouldn't catheterize if you had a negative bag specimen. Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense. That probably is the one beneficial time to, right. to rule something out. So, um, so you know, any... Or I guess maybe one of you can kind of take this question. Um, In the office, when we get that initial urine dipstick, what would be maybe the most common things? And I think most general pediatricians are going to know this, but maybe the common or um, what are the most specific in in terms of the data or the incidence for um, what abnormalities that we would see on urine dipstick that would indicate a urinary tract infection? I'm looking at a urinalysis. I look at nitrites. Um, leukocytes, and I'm looking at the white blood cell count, technically. Uh, Many families are concerned about red blood cells, um, and we go into other discussions about off-subject like vulvovaginitis and other concerns related to around this. This is why the cath specimen is the best, yet in the population that I see is usually 4 to 21. I really don't want to cath kids unless I really need to. Um, But that is something I try to reassure families, and our practice is definitely the culture looking at the culture number and going up from there as far as what the best count is from like a 50 to 100,000 count. That was going to be my next question. In yeah, terms on the of, urinalysis, yeah. you know, the, um, the nitrites, uh, you typically only see nitrate positive if it's a typically gram-negative enteric bacteria because they convert nitrate to nitrite in the urine. So if you have a gram-positive organism, you know, it would be negative, or if you have a non-enteric organism, it may be negative as well. Um, and then in terms of leukocyte esterase is the other one that was kind of referenced. So that's just a sign of having um, inflammation in the urinary tract or pyuria. Um, white blood cells in the urine will leak leukocyte esterase and that will be positive. Um, that's really just looking for an inflammatory response to the um, infection. Because if you're not developing an inflammatory response, you're not developing an immune response to um, what may be going on, then we have a lower concern for a urinary tract infection. Um, she mentioned microscopy, and that's something we routinely recommend, and they'll actually quantify the amount of white blood cells they see um, per high power field, and that'll give a more accurate assessment of pyuria. Um, so we really rely on that pretty heavily in addition to a urine culture to actually have a confirmation of an infection. Um, and certainly with the more things being positive, the more sensitive it's going to be um, for likely having a UTI. Um, so definitely we like to get a urine microscopy and a urine culture um, to assess that. And to piggyback on that, when I get the microscopy back, one thing I always look at with those white blood cells is, of course, your epithelial cells, right? right. You know, how many epithelial cells are in there that may be just 
you know, contributing to that higher white blood cell count. Um, but typically at the same time, you also, those urine cultures are back pretty quickly too. So you can kind of use that in, in right. conjunction. And the other thing to keep in mind with nitrate positivity, it requires about four hours to go from nitrate negative to nitrate positive. So if the urine hasn't been incident in the bladder for that long a period of time, it could be falsely negative. Oh, interesting. So okay. a first morning specimen would ideally be better than on one later in the day, but it can sometimes be falsely negative. Speaking of falsely negative, um, maybe this is a good place. If not, we can always come back to it. But um, is there any um, reason for us to suspect culture negative UTIs when we see kids who symptoms seem very consistent? Um, and maybe even our urine dip had some initial, you know, maybe moderate leukesterase or some, you know, small amount of blood where indicating something going on in the urinary tract. Um, and, and in the office setting, I guess oftentimes I'll see this in the case where everything seems very consistent. I start them on an antibiotic, right, waiting the culture results. The culture comes back and it says negative or maybe a small colony count that we wouldn't assume is significant. And then we reach out to the parent and, oh, they're doing so much better. That's always a hard, right. now, right. was there a, something there we didn't catch? Or maybe it was another illness, right? right. On, so, And just, definitely I see this commonly where you have an abnormal urinalysis, but you have a negative urine culture. Mm -hmm. Could it be a culturally negative UTI? I guess it could, but there's not any test I can do to prove that. Um, so I tend to think of other causes why the urinalysis is abnormal that's not related to a UTI. So they could certainly have underlying bladder bowel dysfunction. That could definitely cause an abnormal urinalysis. And that would usually be the thing I'd be most suspicious of um, for someone that has a negative culture. And I certainly see this in my clinic not too infrequently where someone's referred for recurrent UTIs and they've never had a positive culture once. Um, but they have a bunch of abnormal urinalyses. And that's really where I want to understand their bladder bowel habits to as a likely contributing factor to why they're having urinary symptoms that are being um, interpreted as UTIs. Perfect. And I know we've mentioned this a couple times now, but um, maybe just to clarify what colony counts for bacteria are significant because trying to think how many years ago, I feel like that changed in the last maybe seven years or so and what we considered. And I'm going, wow, I'm dating myself. Yeah. So yeah, the, the AAP came out with updated guidelines, I think last in 2011. Okay. Um, and at that point, they um, set a threshold of 50,000 um, colony forming units per ml for the threshold for a positive UTI. Um, and then in the past, it had historically been greater than 100,000. Um, so obviously, if you have a lower colony count, it's gonna you're going to have a lower threshold, and it's going to be more sensitive for UTIs. Um, so generally, we look at 50,000, but we also consider it in context of everything else. So sometimes we'll treat it, uh, um, a culture that has less than 50,000 if it has a very atypical organism, so something like Proteus um, or Pseudomonas. If you're having less than 50,000, we would typically still treat that and consider UTI, particularly if they have associated symptoms. Sure, that makes sense. And then catheter specimen, is that does it make a difference whether we're talking colony counts from the clean catch versus the It's typically the same. Um, the one that's typically lower if you do a super pubic aspirate. Gotcha. Um, so that's actually even more sterile than a catheterized specimen because you're not actually passing the catheter through the urethra. Um, and you can actually have a lower threshold for a positive culture in that circumstance. And I may be incorrect, but I feel like the previous guidelines did differentiate. So it's yeah. good to know that they're just, and everything is 50,000 now. Yeah. And that's very rarely done in the United States. It's actually yeah. done much more commonly in Europe with doing a suprapubic aspirate. Very easy to do, but not done commonly here. I can't imagine you get many, <laughs> many parents or patients that would right. be super excited about that. So. 
No, they're often, I, I don't cath unless I really feel like I need to with certain patients. Um, and I know that you had discussed, and Andrew and I kind of already got, gone through this, but when a patient comes in with painful urination, showing negative cultures, I'll kind of go through a little bit of the UTI prevention and this, but we also go, this is not really our topic today, but I think of like hypercalciuria for kidney stone. From, these are other tests that we look at, like bulbovaginitis, bowel bladder. I don't always get into the first visit, but bowel bladder is always my first thing, but I kind of explain if these things are continuously negative. And if the symptoms came back after treatment, then I don't feel this was a true UTI. That's a big question I'll ask families for, and I try to do a lot of education with them about that. But I think that's great because, you know, so many times when kids do come in for dysuria, mm -hmm. it yeah. is a different cause. It's not right. always a UTI, yeah. probably. And I would say yeetal stenosis right. is another common yeah, one that true. I see um, in Thank my clinic. Thank you for bringing that up. Because yeah. um, that can certainly cause intermittent dysuria. It can cause microscopic or even right. gross hematuria. Um, typically either at the very beginning or end of the stream. So we see that pretty commonly. Um, and I usually the first question I ask if there's concern about medial stenosis is what is their urine stream like? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, because if it is narrowed, it almost always is mm -hmm. going to spray, deflect, mm -hmm. or have issues with their urine stream. So I usually use that as a, um, a good sign of whether it's causing a problem or not. I do feel like I will have um, some males with medial stenosis that have a little bit of angiuresis too, where maybe they're not emptying their bladder all the way when they go just because of the increased pressure, you know, and the resistance to that stream. So that's a great point. And one I wasn't even thinking about today and I'm thinking, gosh, I should have mentioned that. So appreciate that. Um, moving, kind of changing topics just a bit, but in the realm of treatment for UTIs, um, what should be kind of our first line go-to? And this is interesting because I feel like this changes a bit, just even with resistance patterns. Um, how do I want to say it? Just, you know, in our area versus in different areas. Um, but it, what would you say if I'm treating, um, and then maybe even just duration of treatment, so kind of delving into antibiotic choice, duration of treatment. Um, what as a general pediatrician, I get a culture back and it's, you know, E. coli, or um, I'm waiting on sensitivities still, which obviously sensitivities are going to be our, right. our big, okay, now we know we've got them on the right thing, but what should be kind of our initial go-to? So I generally um, will make the decision about starting empiric treatment or not based on how the child's doing. Um, so if, the, you know, the child's older, they're afebrile, they're not significantly symptomatic, you can certainly watch and wait until the culture finalizes. Um, some families are perfectly fine with that and want to avoid an antibiotic. Others are more apprehensive and want to start it sooner, so sometimes I'll defer a little bit to the family in terms of their comfort level. But if they're, you know, clinically well, uh, then it's certainly okay to wait. And the younger infants, the ones with higher fevers, then we generally like to start empiric treatment prior to the culture finalizing. Um, and then in terms of good options, so um, bad options would be amoxicillin because it tends to be re uh, very resistant in the community. And then also Bactrim tends to also have a high resistance in the community. One we use commonly because it works well for treatment, but it does tend to have a higher resistance pattern. So usually if you're starting empiric treatment, it's not the best option. Um, better options tend to be cephalosporins uh, for empiric coverage. So you can certainly do, you know, a first or second generation cephalosporin. Or if it's a, you know, a child that's having a higher fever and appears, you know, more ill, you can certainly do something like a third generation cephalosporin. Those tend to provide good, broad um, antibiotic coverage. Great. So I think for us, cephalexin. Yeah. You know, yeah. initially, if they're a little more ill, maybe moving along to like ceftonia yeah. or something yeah. like I that think that's would perfect. be great. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and and then, then also another good question with regard to that is, have they had prior UTIs? 
and what grew in the prior culture. Because that's really the most important thing to determine, you know, what antibiotic to choose is what grew previously from the urine. Because oftentimes they'll grow similar bacteria and you'll get an idea what the resistance patterns are. So that can really dictate treatment. Absolutely. That's a great point. And then um, how about duration of treatment? Because I know that that can change with age as well. For our protocol in urology, typically we treat for 10 days. Um, yet research, and it's debatable with different, I go off of ages as well. So for some kids, seven days, I know in the community, sometimes it's even three to five, but typically our practice, and this also, these are typically healthy patients, healthy kids, usually it's seven to 10 days. Um, impair, I don't do as much impaired treatment, but similar to Andrew, I probably do similar practice. With. Yeah, and we definitely get a, um, a skewed um, patient population in urology. Um, so usually I want to differentiate between a complicated and an uncomplicated UTI. Yeah. An uncomplicated UTI is just an otherwise healthy child that doesn't have any underlying bladder bowel issues, no anatomic issues with mm -hmm. their urinary tract, and typically you can do a shorter course of treatment, so somewhere in the 7 to 10 day range is reasonable. If you start looking at older patients, teenage patients, or adult patients, then there's some data to suggest 3 to 5 days yeah. may be adequate. Um, in urology, we're generally dealing with patients that have underlying bladder bowel issues. They have underlying anatomic abnormalities. So by definition, if they're seeing us, they're essentially a complicated UTI. Yeah, so generally, sense. we're doing you know, longer courses, 10 days, sometimes up to 14-day treatment. Sure. Because if you have urinary stasis, reflux, other issues, it can be hard to adequately clear the infection. So you sometimes need a longer course of antibiotics. That makes sense. And then I, I do feel like just thinking realistically, if I'm talking to a teenage patient that has oh, yeah. a UTI that I know can tell me, it doesn't hurt anymore, I feel a lot better versus, you know, a two-year-old that can't tell me those things. Right. You know, you f I think you feel a little more comfortable treating for a shorter course than those, those older kids. So, and thank you for bringing up, you know, we should always be reviewing previous cultural results and sensitivities yep. when, when selecting, if that's available. And then another common um, issue I've noticed is whether to obtain a follow-up culture after treatment. Oh, yeah. um, I never want one, personally, because <laughs> um, if, the, if the child's clinically doing well, their symptoms are improving or resolved, um, I don't need a negative culture to reassure me that things are well. Um, if the patient isn't clinically responding like they should, they're having ongoing or worsening or changing symptoms, and certainly repeating a specimen is appropriate. Um, but I see this pretty commonly where, you know, they continue to get multiple cultures after treatment of UTI, and then they become difficult to interpret in that circumstance. Because if they're abnormal or if it's still positive, um, then it's really hard to interpret if the patient's really doing well and not having any symptoms, and they might have been unnecessarily treated with more antibiotics. Um, which may have not been indicated. So I generally don't recommend doing a repeat culture unless there's a clinical reason to. I think that's great. And I, I think parents probably appreciate that as yeah. well. So. I, would do, I do the same that Andrew's doing. It's Wonderful. not a typical practice. And that's something that I do talk with families a lot about because there's a lot of, sometimes a lot of concerns and questions around that too. Great. And then um, moving along to imaging recommendations or current imaging recommendations, um, it's funny. I, I, I keep on wanting to say, oh, and that's changed. Well, not that recently, I think. is what, Was that the 2011 the imaging recommendations as yeah. well? And there's certainly been um, additional guidelines and recommendations like within the urology community with the American Urological Association. Um, so there's other guidelines out there um, that exist um, in addition to the AAP ones. There's also ones, you know, in Europe um, and other parts around the world that have additional guidance. And we can um, even link the AAP guidelines yeah. at the end of our podcast here um, for those listening. So if we can just kind of go through some of the imaging recommendations. So um, 
what is the age range and what's initially recommended for us as a general pediatrician for first-time UTI? When should we order imaging and specifically what, what imaging should be ordered? Right. So historically, you know, they would get a renal and bladder ultrasound as well as avoiding cystourethrogram after a first febrile UTI, um, mostly regardless of age. Um, the concern with that practice is, one, you may be, um, you know, increasing cost of care with doing a lot of imaging after one febrile um, UTI. And then two, you may be um, overdiagnosing your vesicoureteral reflux, and you may be identifying reflux that may not necessarily be clinically significant. And then there is certainly debate about, um, you know, efficacy of treating with antibiotic prophylaxis uh, for prevention of UTIs in the setting of uh, reflux. Um, so that's the concern um, with kind of doing overdiagnosis and um, excessive imaging after a first febrile UTI. Uh, the most recent guidelines suggested getting a renal and bladder ultrasound um, in patients, and that's mostly to assess for any anatomic abnormalities. Um, it's not a perfect screening test, um, and you certainly will miss things, but it's probably better than anything else we have right now. Um, there's some good data in our um, literature suggests that an ultrasound is not a good screening test, and you can actually miss very high-grade reflux with having a normal ultrasound. Oh, um, and you can certainly miss other things as well that may be subtle and difficult to assess on ultrasound. So it's not an ideal screening test, but it's probably the best that we have. Sure. Um, and it's a reasonable thing to do after a first febrile illness. And I always say easy, painless, you know, no, no um, discomfort to the child. Right. There's no radiation. There's no, right. you know, that's so definitely always has a, its, yeah, So yeah, it definitely has those absolutely. benefits uh, for sure. And current guidelines under 24 months of age under 18 months of age to get the renal ultrasound initially? Um, you could certainly go older than that. You know, okay. I, I, you know, I, I certainly will. I don't have an upper age threshold in terms of when I will not get an ultrasound anymore. Um, if it's a febrile illness, I tend to get an ultrasound in anyone. Okay. Um, if it's just, you know, lower urinary tract symptoms, cystitis, no fevers, um, I find a bladder and bowel diary more helpful yeah. than an ultrasound. So even, say, in a four-year-old, if they had a febrile UTI, sure. you would go ahead and recommend a renal ultrasound. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I mean, I see patients like that all the time that have significant anatomic problems that didn't present with a UTI yeah. until four years of age. So I would be careful with using an upper age threshold for a febrile That's illness. Because um, right. sometimes you can even see teenagers present for mm -hmm. the first time with, you know, underlying anatomic issues that were present from birth. Um, so if it's febrile, I tend to recommend ultrasound in pretty much everyone because um, it can certainly pick up things. Um, and then if it's an afebrile illness in an older child, usually you can often defer an ultrasound unless there's any concerning features. And we typically recommend that ultrasound after the current symptoms are yeah. over that yes, yeah. infection has been treated. Right. Yeah, so you don't need to do it acutely um, in the, during treatment of UTI unless a patient isn't clinically responding appropriately to treatment, then you could certainly consider it because you, you could have, you know, an abscess sure. in the kidney. Right. You could have some type of obstruction where you're having urinary stasis. In that case, uh, antibiotics might not be adequate to clear the infection. Okay. I mean, I would agree with all that and also the urine bowel diary component of stuff. That is like my first thing. Um, I used, when I started in this practice, I did probably much more imaging early on, yet now I would say a belly x-ray would probably yeah. be more for me. I do use the bowel diary. I feel the belly x-ray gives me an acute, faster bowel plan for patients because often pediatricians, they've said, well, the pediatricians talk to us about bowels. And for me, it's like one of the starting points for partly, I don't say the buy-in, but partly for me, it gives me a faster plan if they're already coming frustrated and concerned. Sure. Um, then we work with the bowel diary as well. So for me, a belly x-ray as much as a renal ultrasound, but honestly, the belly x-ray is probably one of my first things. If they're stable, 
um, more of a cystitis versus if it's a pilo concern or anything else, I'm doing a renal ultrasound similar to Andrew. Yeah. And it, but that's even for secondary day wetting with questionable UTI symptoms, stuff like that. That's sure. my first presentation. I can't tell you how many times, um, you know, when I talk to parents about bowel habits and, oh, we've been on Miralax, we've done all that. Yeah. And then you get an x-ray and it's yeah. like, oh, wow, there's a large amount of stool in the colon yeah. still, even though they've, quote, been on Miralax. So That's what chicken fingers mac and cheese will do. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I, I mean, I do think it's just hard for parents it sometimes is. to assess those bowel habits, especially as kids get older and they're right. not with them all day long. So that's a, a great point about, you know, to, to use that as another yeah. tool as well to get that x-ray. Um, interestingly, and I'm, I'm stepping back just a little bit, Dr. Strang, to what you mentioned, um, the the VCUG has kind of fallen out of favor as an initial test. Um, and I thought it was really neat as I was kind of looking to prepare for some of this that um, incidence shows that only about less than one third of children who got a VCUG actually had any reflex. And then out of that third, less than 10% of that third had significant, so right. grade four or five. So I think that really speaks to why you know, renal ultrasound is the go-to imaging right. now. Yeah, we so. definitely want to avoid overdiagnosis, and yeah. that's where, you know, trying to make the criteria more strict for when to get a VCUG I think is reasonable. But it's a balance. Um, so things will often shift in one direction, and sometimes they shift too far in one direction, and sometimes it might settle back out more towards the middle. Um, and I think, you know, certainly some in the urology community think that things might have shifted too far away from um, getting a VCUG. Um, and, you know, there is some data suggesting that we're seeing, you know, higher instance of having, you know, upper track significant infections from reflux, potentially more renal scarring. Um, so I definitely think it's a balance um, in both directions. Sure. And then any indication um, for a primary care physician to think about starting prophylactic antibiotics? I will tell you that yeah. as I'm asking this question, I'm going, oh, I don't think I've ever without kind of recommendations from a consulting urologist just automatically put a child on prophylactic antibiotics. So I was just curious what your thoughts were, what both of you um, think about, you know, when when that would be indicated and if that's something that you're like, no, if, if a child needs prophylactic antibiotics, they should be seeing us and this should not necessarily be a decision that's just made exclusively by the PCP. I would not say the PCP could not make this decision. What I would do, typically my, the protocol is two UTIs in a six-month period for evidence-based practice. Yet for mine, I've kind of changed. I have a lot of families who are somewhat resistant to doing more antibiotics, even if it's prophylaxis and explaining that. So therefore, one of my presentations, if there are febrile UTIs, if there are clinical changes on the renal ultrasound where I'm getting a BCUG, then I'm much more apt to do a prophylaxis. And that's something I would totally encourage to use that clinical judgment as a PCP for those concerns before even coming to see us. Um, yet otherwise, even if they're afebrile, more cystitis, where again, I think it's more bowel bladder dysfunction, and I'm not sure how accurate these UTRs are. Even I don't always start prophylaxis or all kind of wait to see what that. So essentially, the febrile would be more my concern. Sure, and I think a very good point, you know, it it's not always black and white, right? No. There's yeah. definitely that no. gray area and looking at 
kind of just situation clinically and then even sometimes socially, like yeah. you said. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you're looking for is patients that are at high risk of recurrent infections. And those are the ones that are going to benefit from prophylaxis. Yeah. So some patients have underlying bladder bowel issues. They have incomplete bladder emptying. Yeah. And they continue to get one infection after the next, you know, every month or so. Right. Or immediately after they stop their antibiotic, they already have a new infection. I think those are the ones that benefit very mm-hmm. much from a prophylaxis while you're working on their bladder and bowel issues to kind of try to get them to a state of being infection-free because it's hard to really improve bladder and bowels if you're constantly in a state of infection from cystitis. Um, so I think those patients benefit from them. Um, you know, patients with vesicoureteral reflux um, certainly benefit from prophylaxis, mm-hmm. especially if they have a history of having a febrile infection in the past. Because um, one of the most important predictors of whether you're going to have an infection in the future is if you've had a prior infection. Um, so certainly patients with, you know, reflux, regardless of grade, if they've had a prior infection, would benefit from prophylaxis. Um, we get more worried about, you know, higher grades of reflux, grade 3, 4, and 5 reflux. Right. Um, but essentially any grade of reflux can cause a clinically significant infection, particularly if they've had one before. Um, so, and there's certainly good data with the RIVER trial, which many pediatricians are probably familiar with, um, that, you know, prophylaxis is effective for preventing infections. And then amoxicillin still first line for prophylaxis or not? So it depends on the age of the child. So, you know, in children under two to three months of age, amoxicillin would be the um, preferred option. And at that age, their uh, livers aren't uh, mature enough to metabolize our other um, antibiotics that we more commonly use. Um, So that would be a common one used in the younger age group. Um, You can um, also use trimethoprim um, in that age group um, without the sulfamethoxazole component. Um, That's difficult to find, can be expensive, so amoxicillin tends to be the go-to in younger children. And after two, three months of age, the ones most commonly used would be uh, Bactrim, um, nitrofurantoin, and um, occasionally Keflex as well. I try to use nitrofurantoin whenever possible because I tend to like that better as a prophylaxis than um, Bactrim because of the higher antibiotic resistance patterns. But there's different formulations of nitrofurantoin. Some of them can be difficult to find, and for whatever reason, pharmacies can sometimes charge a lot for a drug that's been around for many years. Right. And then I'm going to switch gears a little bit, um, thinking a little bit more about your work, Lauren. Um, I think most of us, understand the physiology of why bowel habits and discussing them are so important, but maybe going into and just making sure that all of our listeners understand why, um, you know, having constipation or having, you know, backup in the bowel with stool truly puts kids at risk for increased urinary tract infections and urinary frequency. I feel the starting point for that, one of the main factors is, from a UTI perspective, especially in females, um, the urethra is smaller. So that's a, the, the basic part of it. I go through um, the other components of the bladder is just smaller from if we're debating even if it's a UTI or wetting component. Um, the bowel bladder component with everything, some of these things are habits. So with patients have become a habit of holding their bowels, either in school or because of stress or other components, again, from a holistic view, I feel bowels do change from the discussions I have with families related to stress factors and everything. Again, these are, there could be research. I don't know the exact research, but this is my component of working with these families. So um, discussing these things with families early on and also with that, discussing when do they go to the bathroom? Are they holding at school? Are they having other components related to this from a social impact? Um, essentially, though, once you're backed up with stool, it can just take months to get that calmed down. I've talked to my friends, other nurse practitioners in GI, and 
they've said it can take up about six months to get your body back in a state from constipation. And they're trying to have families kind of buy into this. There's a big social stigma around bowel and bladder. Mm -hmm. So I feel that's why there's a component to some of this. And also finding the right regimen from a medication standpoint, sure, um, like Miralax or Senna, when to use it. We're discussing with families, I feel there's a component of wanting it to be faster to be completed versus just knowing this is a journey. And there's a lot of, in the visit I originally see them in, for the first visit I feel they can be very overwhelmed if I'm giving them a lot of stuff at once. So I'm piggybacking from the information the PCP's already given. I'm going through what I'm concerned about right now, but then really stressing this is a step-by-step approach. So, And I think physiologically, just thinking about, you know, the colon is a very muscular organ, right? And it gets overstretched. And I always use the analogy, it's kind of like a flaccid balloon then, and you have to give it time to really contract back down. And then just for parents to understand that the, you know, descending colon sits right behind the bladder, right? right? And and exerts that constant pressure pressure. that causes the urinary frequency and potentially causes them to not empty as much because they are withholding and then they get this stagnant urine, which puts them more at risk for urinary tract infection. And then the other component as well is if you are constipated, you tend to have a different um, bacterial flora in your colon than patients that aren't constipated. And sometimes you can have more pathologic variants in the colon. Interesting. Um, I never and realized really, that. And really the bacteria in the, in the colon are the ones that are going to predispose to UTI because they come out and they're, they're in the perineal area and then they ascend through the urethra into the bladder. Sure. And that's typically the pathophysiology for infections. It's an ascending infection from bacteria in that location. So you tend to see different types of bacteria if patients are clinically constipated. And it makes sense just like you said, shorter urethra in the females, also just closer proximity, right, of those two locations as well. And I don't think I'm, I'm going to be able to get through this whole talk and not mention as we're talking about all this, and I'm sure you guys are familiar, and if not, um, pretty funny, but And I can't remember who showed me this. It might have been in residency. You're familiar with the poo in you video? Yes. (laughs) Yes. I show that to parents all the time. Um, But it just, it's it's a very basic, but, you know, two minutes, you know, I can sit here and say this, this, and this. And then they can really understand why that does affect all these other things and why it is important for proper, you know, bowel care and not just a, okay, let's clear them out, let's get them going, and then... We can stop everything. Well, I think there's also the component of the pelvic floor, which is another component, and it's not my first visit discussion. Um, right. But with that withholding, like you said, the, the bladder, I always tell parents it's like a water balloon, and the bowels are right above it, and it can press it in to cause that frequency and that pressure gradient. Yet you can have frequency because of a small bladder, as well as if your pelvic floor muscles, in very basic terms, layman's terms, are unequal, and essentially that relaxation. So we do a lot with retraining these habits eventually and doing some other tests and other education if we need to about even toilet sitting, sitting on the toilet, um, using a stool to elevate your legs just for relaxation techniques. Like you were saying with everything, it just takes time. Um, But some some of these things are further on in our journey of seeing these patients, but we talk a lot about pelvic floor physical therapy. We have a great team who has supported these patients a lot with teaching different techniques and kind of giving them some empowerment Sure. with stuff, which is a little different depending on the age group, um, because we do have, and this is off topic, but we have a lot of younger patients where parents are coming in with concerns, and it's somewhat UTI-related, but if there's a, and I say behavioral loosely, but if the child's not as concerned and the parent's more concerned, then we have other teams to help with those support aspects, too. I think that's great. I think our mind... Um, as medical professionals immediately goes to how do we treat UTIs? What do we do? What labs do we order? But such 
a huge, huge component is the prevention aspect. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, moving kind of on to when is appropriate or what is would be the indications for a general pediatrician to refer on to a urologist is and this is a not a black and white question either you know a lot of this does depend on you know duration of how long this has been going on how many utis comfort of the family all the things that we have mentioned here but is there anything where you know you guys would say no this patient this patient you know needs referred i mean i would say most patients that develop um, a febrile urinary tract infection should be referred to urology okay. uh, for a further evaluation. They could certainly get uh, ultrasound as well to screen for anything that might be identified. And then, you know, talk about, you know, risk of potentially having another UTI, modifiable risk factors that can be addressed. Um, and then have a discussion about whether a VCG is indicated or not. Occasionally, we will get a VCG after a first febrile UTI, depending on the clinical circumstances. So if a patient develops a very severe infection, where they're septic, bacteremic, they have elevated creatinine, hydronephrosis, um, and they develop that at a very young age, um, then a VCG after a first febrile UTI is a, re is a reasonable consideration. Or if they develop a very unusual or atypical organism, it may be it may be reasonable as well to obtain a VCG. So I, I have that discussion with families after their first febrile UTI every time about the risks and benefits versus deferring a VCG until a second one, getting it now, and kind of make an individualized decision based on that. So um, I think after a first febrile UTI, you know, all patients should be referred with a ultrasound. And then, um, um, you know, things that pediatricians can do in the meantime would be a certainly assess for underlying constipation and, you know, younger children or older ones as well, and trying to address that because I can, it's not too infrequently I'll see someone that's coming to my clinic with a urinary check complaint but they're constipated, mm -hmm. and I can I can I can't say for sure whether the constipation is the sole driver of those urinary symptoms, but it may be. Um, so if they come to my office after having their constipation addressed, then we can more focus on the underlying urinary symptoms. So that's certainly one thing that can be done is you know treating constipation aggressively um, prior to seeing us, and then that kind of can help us understand how much that's driving the urinary symptoms and if we need further work done in that area. I I love that you say that. I like to in a little bit of a joking manner, but with parents say, you know, if I send you to urology and you haven't already done Miralax, yep. made right. sure you have, then the first thing they're gonna want you to do is this. So let's do this first. Right. We won't waste your time. We won't waste their time. And sometimes yeah. families get frustrated because they're like, it's right. not constipation right. related. And, right. and the way I explain it is I, I say, you may be right, it may not be. But I can't Absolutely. say it's not until the constipation is right. addressed. So if we can um, and then sometimes it can be that. harder to interpret urinary symptoms. It can be harder to interpret studies if there's significant stool burden. Right, right. So I really think that's the first step is to eliminate that from the equation and see how much it helps. Absolutely. So, And I, I try to kind of say the same thing. It, it may not be, but at least we've tried this and we've right. ruled yeah. that out, right? So, which is great. Um, well, actually, it's, this has been fun because... As much as I knew this, you know, I was really focused on, you know, treatment and imaging and um, which I think we've we've covered in detail, but also added a lot of reminders about the true kind of more holistic um, bowel and bladder approach um, with your expertise as well, Lauren. So I appreciate that. Um, I have learned a lot today, and hopefully our listeners um, have has, have as well. Uh, if there's anything else you would like to share before we leave or any other kind of pearls you want to add to our audience, I, you can 
Should we talk about any of their prevention strategies? Um, Because I know there's a lot of families often come in with a lot of questions about probiotics, prebiotics, um, and other things that are available over the counter um, that may reduce risk of UTI. Yeah, there's a mixed research out there with some of this, and Andrew kind of could speak to some of this more, but um, I families will come in probiotics i'm not against trying some of these other routes um and i do agree that a lot of families are already frustrated with the bowel stuff by the time they come to us but then so we kind of try to approach it in different ways and different angles if i feel a family with preventative if they've already come to me and they've been doing bowel stuff for a long time and they've been following the pcp's plan i'm often to already go to refer to gi from my standpoint because i feel like it's such a big component they've been on this journey for like five years sure. uh, that's going to be my first thing that i'm really like let's I hear you're frustrated. Let's do this. Um, There's also with cranberry supplements a lot of questionable stuff out there. Although, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, we've talked about like ocean spray being – there's data that's not 100%. I do have patients that have been on prophylaxis. I typically do three to six months for prophylaxis with patients, then trial off to see how they're doing depending on where things are at when I'm doing prophylaxis. and then I feel for some families, there's a comfort zone with the prophylaxis. So I will often be like, we can do cranberry supplement. Um, there's different recommendations. There's Allura, there's different ones. And I've had them use it. Some families will get stuff from over the counter, mm-hmm. and they've done well with that as well. Um, but I do tell them it's, I think it's a whole picture approach. Like, sure. how, how much are you drinking? That's why the urine diary is such a big thing for me. And I've really valued the time that families, if they're able to do that, because it also shows the family what's the fluid intake and that's kind of our hope behind it but we know a lot of families are like oh we don't have the time we don't have this so i really start with these basic things first from partly from a cost perspective bowel and bladder diaries are cost effective it's just the timing i think most families and even teenagers think their fluid intake is better than it is until they really track it it's a big thing and even that's our biggest discussion is fluid intake with everything um parent that's a big discussion between parent and child that we run into in the room Mm -hmm. and um so fluid intake i'm often trying to just encourage getting fluids in other ways into them um and that can i've had families who come in with these uti symptoms of dysuria but then they were drinking pop all the time or that's very Mm -hmm. basic stuff so we have a lot of education on the four c's and a lot of it yes there's even some more information our pelvic floor team has given out with more in-depth um, information that even goes to our, like our night wetters and day wetters about other ideas. So, and can you? I know what they are, but will you share for our listeners yeah. what those four C's are that are the bladder irritants? Yeah. So caffeine, carbonation, citrus, and chocolate are that. Um, all the good things. All the good exciting yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and I will give credit for some families that are really in tune and on board and just owning this. They will say they totally notice the difference in their yeah. child once they have it, once they've cut back. So. And I've had probably one of my biggest culprits when I talk to families about those because they're like, oh, no, no, chocolate milk. Right. <laughs> you know, is yeah. You, oh, they don't do chocolate. They don't do candy. But, you know, it's amazing sometimes when you mention those four things and just breeze over them. Oh, yeah. And, so. the, and the data is definitely mixed with regard to using cranberry, yeah. probiotics, prebiotics. There's higher level of evidence in adults, but not as much mm-hmm. in children. Okay. Um, another one that's discussed is D-mannose, um, and that can be used as well for UTI prevention. Um, and it's something that I discuss with patients and families, um, and I offer it as an option to do because I find that these supplements are unlikely to be harmful, and they certainly may have some benefit to them. Um, and I usually try to load the boat and do everything I can if I have a patient that's getting one UTI after a next to try to optimize things. Um, getting um, a child to take um, a cranberry can be difficult because many of them don't like 
taste of cranberry juice because it's bitter. Um, and then also, you know, all cranberry supplements aren't the same. Um, so um, really, there's an active ingredient, cranberry, that prevents binding of E. coli to the urinary tract, and that's the reason that it's been shown to be effective. And there's widely different concentrations of the active ingredient um, in various products. Um, I don't think I ever knew that. But and yeah, cranberry, the, significant. Yeah, and then ocean spray tends to be better than other ones with regard to higher um, concentration of the active ingredient. Some okay. of them have very little. Some of them have a lot of sugar and other things that you certainly want to avoid. Sure. Um, they do make supplements as well that you can take um, that provide higher levels of active ingredient without the actual drinking the, um, the cranberry juice, which kids tend to not like. Great. So it is certainly different ways to do that if families want to pursue that option. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I will mention when patients come in, this is uh, something that's kind of evolving in our practice from physicians to nurse practitioners, but typically we do check to see if they're emptying their bladder from my perspective. There's a, a lot of parents bring come with concerns, especially with UTIs, um, to see if they're emptying, which often they are, but sometimes they're not at all. Um, and just for UTI prevention, as well as knowing where things are at, we do often do a bladder scan. So you're checking that post-void residual. We are. And yeah. it's, but this can be, this is something clinically a debatable in all of us. Um, there's different guidelines. As nurse practitioners, we kind of follow as also the physicians. But for me, if I'm able to get it on the first visit, that's great. But again, for me, the bowel stuff is probably the first thing. Then I, if it's still ongoing and we can't get it that day, then we'll do the PBR next time. Great. So. Great. Well, I appreciate everything, and thank you um, for adding. That was a great, again, prevention strategies, which as a primary pediatrician, I feel like that should be our focus. So thank you um, for sharing, and thank you both for joining us today. I just want to remind all our listeners that there will be CME credit at the end of this um, on the page where the podcast is listed that you can do, as well as a clinical practice support tool that you can always um, refer to. And um, we can link the AAP guidelines for imaging, as we had mentioned. Um, so thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.